right, the story is told, but before I tell it, you're going to have to really think this one through. Just warning you in advance. Hey, some are meant to be funny, others are to make you think. A psychiatrist walks into a mental hospital and asks a patient, how did you get here or what is the nature of your illness? And this is the following response. He said, it started when I got married. I guess I should have never done it. He said, I married a widow with a grown daughter who then became my stepdaughter. My dad came to visit, fell in love with my lovely stepdaughter and married her. So my stepdaughter was now my stepmother. Soon my wife had a son who was, of course, my daddy's brother-in-law, since he is the half-brother of my stepdaughter, who is now, of course, my daddy's wife. So as I told you, when my stepdaughter married my daddy, she was at once my stepmother. Now, since my new son is brother to my stepmother, he also became my uncle. And as you know, my wife is my step-grandmother, since she is my stepmother's mother. And don't forget that my stepmother is my stepdaughter. And remember, too, that I am my wife's grandson. <laughs> and that's not all. You see, since I'm married to my step-grandmother, I'm not only the wife's grandson and her husband, but I am also my own grandpa. <laughs> now, you say, how does that fit into anything? Well, you know, I thought of that story as I was studying Luke chapter 20. If you got your Bibles turned with me, it shows you how my mind works sometimes. It's a scary thought. But in Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through 47, in this passage, Jesus asked the religious leaders a question that because of their refusal to believe God's word caused their heads to spin. And if you'll look at this passage with with me, you'll see what I'm talking about. In this passage, Jesus introduces himself as the son of David and as David's Lord. Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 41. says, And Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. David therefore calls him Lord, and how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for parents' sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. So the question of the moment, the question of the day is that, well, if David said that he is his son, how did David also say that he is his Lord? How can you be both son and Lord at the same time? You know, and so that's the question that was asked. And to get a better understanding of it, turn back with me in the book of Matthew because we'll look at some of the parallel accounts and we'll put them all together and get a better feel and overview of what all was involved in this particular encounter. In Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 41, we have the same encounter. There's a little more detail given to us in Matthew's account. And we're told that now while the Pharisees were gathered together, so we know he was addressing the Pharisees. Jesus asked them a specific question, and the question was, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. 
And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he also his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. So, you know, as, you, as, as we were going through, you know, Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ, in this particular account that we see here in Matthew, it was, you know, Jesus asked the Pharisees one final question. Remember, they're the ones that started all of this. They're the ones that said, you know, who do you think you are and by what authority do you do these things? Remember, by what authority did you ride in on t- into town on the, on the you know, colt of a donkey and allow the people to proclaim you as the son of David? Who did you think you are and by what authority did you go into the temple overturn the money changers? Who do you think you are and by what authority have you preached with such you know, authority in the synagogues where you wouldn't quote from other rabbinical sources, you act as if you're the source of all truth? Who do you think you are? And then they started to ask him the other questions. When the Pharisees failed, then the Sadducees came along. And when the Pharisees asked him about taxes, you know, should we pay taxes or not taxes? Hey, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, under God the things that are God's. And then they came to him and said, okay, we got the perfect one. There was a woman who was married seven different times. And in the resurrection, whose husband, you know, you know will she have or whose wife will she be? And he said, you know what, you don't understand. In this age, it's one thing. In that age, it's another thing. You don't even know what you're talking about. You're asking questions that really don't make any sense because they're a moot point. And so now Jesus turned it back on them and said, you know what, let me ask you something. Whose son is the Messiah? And they all said, and rightly so, he's the son of David. They understood from Scripture that, you know, God's promised one would come through the line or be a descendant of the greatest king Israel ever had, King David. He said, oh, okay, well, if that's the case, then how did he say that, you know what, as he went through, he said, well, then how does he say this? That David in the Spirit, you know, anointed by the Spirit of God, inspired by the God, you know, you know, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Well, if that's the case and you believe that the Psalms were written by, you know, the Holy Spirit of God through David, then how does David say in the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And he threw that out to them. And this was the question. And they were silenced by this. And what I learned from that as I was going through it is that, you know, there are times in life where we can be silenced but still hold on to wrong beliefs. And we've got to be very careful because the, the prideful heart of man, you know, there are times in life where we want to believe a certain thing and the evidence indicates that what we believe isn't true. We may be silenced by the answer that we get, but does it change our heart? Does it change our beliefs? Does it change our behavior? And if it doesn't, we're even worse off than we were before because before we thought we believed something and we thought we believed it based on certain evidence or certain factual information. But now we believe it because, frankly, we just want to believe it. We don't want to consider the alternative. We don't want to have to have a change of heart or a change of mind, which the Bible calls repentance. We don't want to repent. We want to dig in, hunker down, and hang on to what we want to believe. And so God is always trying to teach us truth by presenting facts or evidences. And, and now Jesus kind of, kind of, he counterpunches with the single most important question in life. You know, when you think about it, that's a huge statement. 
think about all the questions that you and I have to answer in life. And when I say that this is the single most important question you will ever have to answer, you would think it would get our attention. And he said, basically, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Whose son is he? What do you think about the son? More, more in our terms or culture, it's this. What do you believe about Jesus? Now think about all the questions in life that you and I have to answer. You know, and important questions. Will you marry me? That's an important question. Has a huge ramification. Decision has to be made. You know, do you want to have children? Will you accept this job offer? Are you willing to relocate? You know, should I undergo surgery? Should I undergo this treatment, that treatment, whatever? I mean, these, these questions have huge ramifications. Should we buy? Should we sell? Which college should I attend? Which classes should I take? Which major should I endeavor? You know, as we've been building, you know, the property and the, and the church and the construction, there's a myriad of questions, endless number of questions. You know, do we have this type of carpet, that type of carpet, this type of tile, that type of tile? Should these walls stay or should these walls go? Should this be braced? Should this not be braced? And should we put the electrical underground? Should we dig it now? Should we do it later? Should we put conduit? Should we not do it? And it goes on and on and on. Should we pour the walls? Should we, you know, put a different type of wall in, you know, block wall or pour it or, you know, and it just goes on. You know, and then, and then the most important questions, which, of course, ladies, you all know what those are, you know, what color paint should it be? <laughs> you know, I mean, and it's endless. You know, these questions are endless, but none, not one of those questions or any other that you can think of is more important than the one that Jesus asks, and that is this. What do you think about the Christ? What do you believe about Jesus? In another passage, Jesus said to Peter, Who do men say that I am? And he answered, that they said, You're a prophet, you're a teacher, Jesus, you're a good guy, do be brothers, you're all right with me. You know, all this kind of stuff. And he said, you know what, though? But who do you, Peter, who do you say that I am? And I'm going to ask you that question today. Not who does your mom and who does your dad and who does your grandpa and grandmother and who do your friends or family or who's the person next to you. I'm going to ask you that question. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you believe about him? That is the most important question you will ever be asked and the most important answer you will ever give will determine your salvation and your eternal destiny. How you answer that question will determine whether you spend an eternity in the presence of God 
or you spend an eternity in hell away from Him and all of His glory and all the blessings that go along with it. How you answer that question has not only implications for all of eternity, but it also has implications for the here and the now. Jesus said, I came that I will bring you life and bring it abundantly. It affects how you'll live today. It affects every decision you have to make. It affects how you see things happening in your life. It'll determine whether you believe that God is in control or whether you believe that everything happens haphazardly at random or somehow you are the captain of your own ship and you are the master of your own fate. How you answer that question determines so much in the here and now and through all of eternity. What do you really believe about Jesus? No, not what do we teach as a church and not what does our statement of faith say. And you know, any, I, you know what? That doesn't matter to me. What matters to God and you is that how you answer, what do you believe about Jesus? And that's what he asked them. Who do you say that he is? If you'll jump ahead, you'll notice that the Pharisees immediately and rightly answered. They said that the Christ, the Savior that God had promised, the anointed one, the promised deliverer of God, the nation of Israel, is the son of David. They all knew and understood that, you know what? The Christ, when he comes, the Savior, when he arrives, would be the descendant of David, Israel's greatest king, because that's the promise that God had made. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so they knew and they answered that. He's the son of David. And Jesus said, hey, you know what? They're not totally hopeless. They got that right. But it became a platform or a springboard for teaching time. And then Mark picks it up. If you go to Mark's gospel account in the 12th chapter, as we work our way back to the gospel of Luke, in Mark chapter 12, He asked the same question, and Jesus answering began to say. So he said, okay, who do you say that he is? And he says, he's going to be the son of David. And he answered them, you know what, you're right. But I want to get you to think a little bit more. And he taught in the temple, he says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. David himself calls him Lord, and so in what sense is he his son? And as you can imagine, it says, and the crowd enjoyed listening to him. You know what, isn't that the great place to be in life? When we enjoy listening to God. When we enjoy opening the Bible and listening to the voice of God instruct us. But not just enjoyment for the sake of entertainment. See, and there's a whole difference between the two. We live in a culture that loves to be entertained. Oh, the guy was funny and it went fast and it was that. No, but, but, but I'm talking about something deeper than that. To enjoy, to relish, to soak it all in, to listen to what he says. Man, that's, that's good stuff. That's a great question. How can, how can David's son be his Lord? And they sat back and they wanted an answer. Answer it. And you and I, I'm hoping that you're sitting there going, you know what, I want an answer to that. How can David's son be his Lord? You know, how can this guy be his own grandpa? How does that happen? You know, when you go through it in a superficial way, you go, man, that's, that's interesting and that's true. 
But how much more significant it is as we look at this and go, how can David's son be his Lord? And so now we're ready to look at the simple outline and that we go back to Luke's gospel account. We're going to see two things. One is we're going to see the Messiah's relationship to David. And then the second thing is rebuke of the scribes, which follows on the, the coattails of this particular lesson, this, this, this Bible study that Jesus gives to them. So the first thing we're going to look at is, let's look at his relationship to David, specifically as it relates to his claim that is made, the claim that is made is that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David, a descendant of Israel's great king. The Old Testament clearly teaches what the New Testament reinforces, and that is the Messiah, God's promised one, when he came, would be a direct descendant of King David. That's why in Isaiah 9, 7, you know, at this time of year, especially as we get closer to Christmas, we'll hear this quoted all the time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders. And then it goes on and says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. In, in the birth narratives that Luke gives us, we see the same thing, that he will be a son of David. In Matthew's account, we see in the genealogy in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew that he is of the son or the, the kingdom of David. And so they understood, and rightly so, that Jesus, they didn't understand Jesus, but the Messiah would be the son of David. Now, what upset the Pharisees was when the blind beggar outside of Jericho, and see, this is what I love about teaching the Bible in context because we've got something to build on. And if you remember this in particular encounter, as Jesus was going to the town, the blind beggar stood outside the city and yelled out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, we can read right through that and miss all the significance, but everybody around understood what that man was saying. He was saying that, Son of David, you are the promised one of God who would come through the lineage of David. You're the Savior of the world. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Son of David, have mercy on me. The reason the Pharisees were so upset is because Jesus was riding into town on the donkey. All the crowds and the multitudes were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he is the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And they said, Son of David. And they were crying out. And what they were crying out was, You are the promised one. You know, today the words change, contemporary words and things like that. And I know that some people get all upset about, you know, how can you say, he's, you know, Jesus is the famous one, that's blasphemy. It's like, listen, you know what? He is the famous one. He is the most famous name that has ever been uttered in all of human history. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. There's nothing blasphemous about that. It, you know, that, that's judging a person who writes those words and try to ascribe motives to them that you don't even know or understand. You know what? We need to sit back and recognize that, you know what? God moves through all of us in different ways. And if somebody says, you know what? You're the most famous one in all the earth. You're the most famous one in all the world. You're the most famous one in all the universe and great is your name and greatly to be praised we've got to be very careful about having those negative attitudes and that negative spirit that critical heart that oftentimes we like to inject i like what one guy told me once he said hey he said you know what chuck when your people are you know when they're upset about all these things about hymns and contemporary songs and things like this just remind them that this that anything other than the psalms is a contemporary hymn that's a contemporary song. Isn't that true? Anything that was written after the Psalms is, is contemporary by, by that standard. 
So we've got to be real careful about these things. And we look at this and realize that, you know what? He's saying, son of David. This claim was very simple. But their problem was this. They were looking for a savior, a messiah, who was a gifted human leader, who would bring in a new political kingdom like David of old did. These students of the Bible missed the truth of Scripture, which clearly taught Messiah's reign would have no end, that it would be forever, not a temporary earthly kingdom. See, Jesus was patiently instructing them to consider carefully God's word that he indeed fulfilled God's promise that Messiah would be David's descendant. And they were confused about Jesus because they didn't look into the facts that were connected with his birth. And in John chapter 7, they have this tremendous debate that went on because some were saying that he was the prophet, the Savior, the Messiah. And you know what their big argument was? He can't be the Savior. He can't be Messiah because he's from Nazareth. And they didn't understand. And in chapter 7 of, God, of, of Luke's, I mean, uh, John's gospel, verse 40, it said, Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet, the Savior, the Messiah. Others were saying, This is the Christ. So others were saying, Surely the Christ is not, look at, is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So what what was was their debate? Jesus can't be the promised one of God because he's from Galilee. And they were like, no, Jesus is from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. And the... And the the biblical narratives tell us clearly, and we celebrate it every year at Christmas, you know, away in the manger, Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, he fulfilled that prophecy. So Jesus did qualify from that one prophecy, and you go through the checklist, check, 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 check. Wow, you know, the evidence is starting to become overwhelming that maybe Jesus is the Savior of the world. See, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was a descendant of David. The multitudes cried out and acclaimed that Jesus is the son of, of David, and he, and he didn't rebuke them. You'll see that in Matthew 21, verses 9 through 11. He, he recognized that. He accepted that. The religious leaders agreed that Christ would be the son of David, but they did not believe that Jesus fit the profile. And the big question for us is why not? Why not? And the why not is so important because they were looking for a conquering hero. They were looking for a temporary prince. They were looking for a military messiah, not a divine deliverer. They were locked on to the here and now. And they continued to demonstrate a mentality that plagued the nation for generations. They were content with the idea of a human deliverer And here lies a common problem of our day. We are so prone to be satisfied with mere human saviors. And that really is our problem. See, Israel demanded that God appoint a human king over them. They didn't want God to reign over them. And you can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when you have a moment. But just read about it because this is the start of all of their troubles. They said, we want a king 
to rule over us like all the other nations of the world. God, we don't want you to rule over us. You think about this. God directly ruled over the nation of Israel. God directly gave to them all of his laws of standards for conduct and behavior. God led them personally, and they said, we don't want you to lead us. We want a king like all the other nations. You know what the problem was? They weren't like all the other nations. God had chosen them to rule over them personally, and they said no. And that's when all their problems started. They didn't have one godly king from the northern tribe. They had some mixed in the southern tribes. But for the most part, they had a mess on their hands because they wanted a human deliverer and not a divine one. See, they wanted a king and they paid a huge price. See, today... We've got that same choice. Do you want God ruling over you? Or do you want a human deliverer? See, we're as guilty as the Pharisees when we become content with human saviors. And I want to share some things with you and you stop and think about it. But, you know, we, we live in a culture today where all too often we focus on political leaders or political parties. And I heard a lot of that as the election was coming up and that one that we just had. And I heard people talking about, you know, if, if this person's not elected, then you know what? There's no hope for us. If that person's elected, then oh man, there's no hope for us. If this party takes office, then you know what? There's hope. And if this party does, there's no hope. And I thought, you know, how, how tragic that is. And, and yeah, we want to, to take part in that process and we want godly people who would best reflect, you know, God's point of view or God's standard and how we conduct our lives and the decisions that we make. But don't you ever believe for one moment there's no hope for us because God is our hope. And we get so sidetracked by some of these things and it breaks my heart when I hear it. That somehow we have no hope if we don't get that human Messiah we're looking for. You know, we focus on, you know, authority as being somehow our deliverer. I see people all the time who their hope is in their employer. You know, all my hope and trust is in a boss and I hope that all my financial concerns will be taken care of by the generosity of a human being. And that person becomes my deliverer. I see it in churches where people focus too much on a pastor or on leadership and not on God and, and that pastor or those handful of people. They become our deliverer and our hope and the focus is on them. And, and I don't want your focus to be on me. I don't want your hope to be resting on me. I've heard people say, well, what, what's going to happen if he dies? You know what's going to happen if I die? The same thing that happens when all of us die. You know what? God is still our hope. He's still our rock. He's still our reference. He's still our deliverer. And you know what? And his church will continue to go on. On as it continues to go on throughout human history because the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. You see, we have to get to the point where our hope is in the Lord and in Him only we trust. Now, I'll explain a little bit more in a moment, but I hear this from people talk about, and here's where bitterness and cynicism come in. You know, our hope is in a doctor, and the doctor hasn't called me back, or that, you know, or this type of treatment isn't working or whatever. 
listen, you know what? And I've told you this before. It's called the practice of medicine for a reason. And, and most of the time they practice on me and you. And they learn and they take notes and you become, you know, something that they use in the future for I had this one person and this is what we did and this is what worked or didn't work. And you know what? Don't become embittered or angry or cynical toward the medical profession or doctors or nurses or others or even the gal that answers the phone and sets appointment. You know why? Because our hope is not in them. Our hope is in the Lord. He is our deliverer. You know, we see this all the time and, you know, we, I, I saw guys in, in professional sports whose their hope is in, you know, an owner, their hope is in a manager, their hope is in a coach or a position coach, and their hope is in, you know, human beings and they're looking for that human deliverer, you know, and, and, or their hope is in a teacher, or their hope is in, you know, this, that or the other thing. And let's just get one thing straight from now and all of eternity, our hope rests in God. Now that doesn't take away, and don't misunderstand, because here's what people usually do, they'll jump from one extreme to the other, and please meet me somewhere in the middle here. I appreciate and I praise God for the doctors that He's brought into my life. I appreciate and praise God for the nurses and for the treatment and for the surgeries and all these kind of things that we go through. I appreciate, you know, employers that I've had in the past. I appreciate presidents and senators and and congressmen and and government officials. And I appreciate them and I respect them for the position that they have. I respect and appreciate coaches and managers and owners and and teachers and all the, you go all the way down the line and hopefully pastors and elders and all of that because there's a proper place for all of those people in our life. And I respect them for what they do. But my hope, is not in them. My hope and trust is in the Lord. That's why it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. That's why it says to love me, God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because that's what he's trying to help us to understand. Our focus and our hope has got to be in him. Who do you say Jesus is? To you. See, the Jews wanted a Messiah to collect armies, to deliver them from Roman bondage, to give them a good situation in the new kingdom. They wanted nothing that a clever leader could not give them. You know what they wanted? They wanted lower taxes. They wanted a guaranteed social security system. They wanted more jobs. They wanted affordable health care and affordable housing. They wanted safety from terrorists or oppressive nations. They wanted salvation from hunger and thirst and discomfort of a physical kind. And what they didn't realize that in Jesus, not only could they have that, but they could have much more. And they were willing to take less. Human government at its best is second best. And at its worst, it is a nightmare. But a theocracy... Now you're talking about something that'll last. 
the comments that were made, if you look again in Luke, in verses uh, 42 and 43, you'll notice that as he looks at this, he says, For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. David therefore calls him Lord. How is he his son? See, they were missing the big picture. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which is a heavily messianic psalm. It's the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament and the most powerful argument as to the identity of Jesus Christ. The person David refers to as my Lord is messianic. And here's the opening lines of this psalm literally should be read like this. Yahweh says to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Yahweh, God, Jehovah, will extend your mighty Messiah scepter from Zion. Your Messiah will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. And Yahweh, God, has sworn and will not change his mind. Messiah, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. See, the author of Hebrews writes, To which one of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? See, the apostle Peter referenced this psalm in the book of Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, where he said, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, Jesus no doubt had their attention and probably had their attention much more than I have yours. But at the same time, I'm hoping that I have yours just a little bit so that you don't miss the conclusion of the argument, this great argument that Jesus makes. And the conclusion that must be faced is found in verse 44 where he says, David therefore calls him Lord, how is he his son? What he's saying to them and to us is this. Listen, would you people stop and think for a moment? Stop and think about this. He, Messiah, is David's son in the flesh. And he, Messiah, is David's Adonai or Lord God. How is that possible? And we see the revelation of it through Scripture because Thomas said when he stood before Jesus and fell on his face after the resurrection, my Lord Adonai and my God. You are my Lord and my God. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Jehovah and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is why all through the Bible, the Bible is very clear, you cannot believe in God at the exclusion of Jesus Christ being God. You cannot believe in God and not believe Jesus is God. That is the spirit of Antichrist, as John says in 1 John. You know what? To deny the deity of Jesus Christ is to deny God. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I am the Father and one. What he was trying to argue with them is very clearly, listen, how can David say that Messiah is a son of his and yet at the same time his God, his Lord and his God? They don't understand and they didn't understand what we understand today and that is very clearly this. The answer is found in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The answer is found in this. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us? The answer is found in the God of the universe and the person of Jesus Christ came to this earth and being found in the likeness and the appearance of men, humbled himself to the point of obedience according to death, even death upon the cross, and was resurrected from the dead. How was Jesus both David's son and David's Lord? Because he is God of all the universe. That's the answer. And they didn't get it, and they didn't understand it. We have the full revelation of God. We read it. John the Baptist said, Hey, behold, one who is coming after me who is greater than I, but because he existed before me. Well, if you read your Bible, you know that John the Baptist, human, human chronologically speaking, was six months older than Jesus. But he's saying, one is coming after me who is greater than I because he existed before me. Well, how did he exist before me? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here comes the Savior of the world. He is greater than me because he existed before me. Although you people think in terms of human thinking that he's six months younger than me. How can he be greater than me and exist before me? Because he's the God of the universe who appeared in the likeness of men and now walks among us. And we behold his glory. Glory of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and full of truth. There's your answer, folks. What is the claim? The claim is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Now, I ask you the question, who do you say Jesus is? A teacher, a prophet, a rabbi, a good guy, any of those answers will condemn you and damn you to an eternity in hell. If you say he is my Lord and my God, then you got it right. And for as many as receive him, To them he has given the privilege to be called children of God. To those who believe in his name. His authority to forgive sin. He was trying to elevate their thinking beyond the here and the now. They didn't like that. That's why in John chapter 6 where he fed the multitudes. They all followed him because he was their meal ticket. He was their sugar daddy. He was the guy that they would never have to work again. If we follow Jesus, we don't have to go to the well and get water. We don't have to go out into the fields and gather up food. We follow Jesus, he'll feed us. And he began to use it as a platform. I am the bread that came out of heaven. If you will just eat of my body, you will receive me. You will partake of me. You will trust in me. You will never be hungry again. And they thought on the terms of the physical. And he was talking on the terms of the spiritual. He was there to deliver them from their sin. The question is, what do we want? Do we want a spiritual deliverer or a physical deliverer? The Bible is very clear that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. How did these guys miss this? The same way people miss it today. The problem with these teachers of the law is that they had, studied, they had a studied ignorance of God's word and a practiced inability to think beyond their traditions. They read the word of God through a political lens. They wanted a human deliverer. And they looked at Jesus and went, this guy's not going to get it done. He doesn't have any armies. He doesn't preach revolution. He doesn't preach overthrow the Roman government. We hand him a coin. He says, hey, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, unto God the things that are God. We're not going to get anywhere with this guy. 
We're not going to overturn Rome and establish this kingdom. This isn't the guy we're looking for. We think in the terms of the here and the now. We think in the terms of the physical. And you know what? You and I have the same problem when we read the Bible through our own subjective lenses. I talk to folks who read the Bible through an object, a subjective lens of economics. And you know what they see? Everything in the Bible they read tells them that God wants them to prosper materially. Everything. Oh, yeah. You know, God wants us to have it all. It's all about the here and the now. It's all about stuff. It's all about material things. It's all about that. And they ignore everything else in Scripture that talks about using those resources for the glory of God to store up our treasures in heaven because, you know, there thieves won't break in and steal and rust and moth won't destroy. They ignore all of those passages that talk about, you know what, that we're just passing through where citizenship is in heaven and we're sojourners and aliens on this earth. They ignore all of those things because they have one thing in mind. God wants me to be rich. And they'll pick out every verse that talks about it. You know, and, and sadly, I see people who read the, through the subjective lens of a health lens. And I've had some well-meaning people send me wonderful passages of Scripture. But the focus is always on how God wants to heal me physically. By His stripes you are healed. Hey, you know what? The context of that is, by His stripes, you and I are healed who believe in His death upon the cross on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. We are healed once and for all of eternity by the price that Jesus paid on the cross to those who believe in the power of His resurrection. It has nothing to do with God wanting us always to be physically healed. If he wanted us all to be physically healed, none of us would ever physically die. Let's just stop and think about the simplicity of that argument. If God wanted us all to be physically healed, we would never die physically. But the wages of sin is death. But that's all right, because the greatest thing God ever did to Adam and Eve, and as a result to you and I, was he did not allow them to eat of the tree of life, where they would have lived in a condemned condition before God physically for all of eternity. He said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. You and I will die physically, but praise God, those of us who trust in Christ or are alive spiritually continue to live in the blessings and presence of God. But we read the Bible through these subjective lenses. We read it through a political lens. And we saw that in the election, I've already mentioned. You know what? We've got to have these candidates. And we have to have this agenda. And we have to have these propositions. And we've got to have this, that, and the other thing. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We need to fight for all of those things because they do make an impact here and now. But you know what? That's not God's kingdom. One day His kingdom, His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When he establishes his kingdom, we don't have to worry about propositions and initiatives and ballots because you know what? Our vote doesn't count. (laughs) He don't care what we have to say because he's God and he's going to do it his way. And I praise God for that because his way is right and his way is best. But we see racial lenses. We saw people for years read through Scripture in a racial lens, and they use it to oppress other racial groups because this is what they read, not out of God's Word, but into God's Word. We see it now with the feminist movement, where we see you know, people saying, we don't want God to have a masculine gender. 
You know, if God, God might be a woman, we get the email things, you know, here's the argument that God is a woman, you know, because he could whip up a meal with no notice, you know, you know all those kind of things, you know, and, and, and they're funny, but they're blasphemous from the standpoint that they're saying that, you know what, that God is a woman because we don't want God to be a man. And you know what, but that's not what scripture teaches. Deal with it. You know, we need to understand that this postmodern lens that we have that subject, you know, that subjectizes, you know, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to, well, what do you think this means? Oh, gag me. I can't stand. If you're in a Bible study where people go, well, what do you think that means? It's like, oh, who cares what you think? Because, you know, we already know you and we already know that half the stuff you think is really stupid. It's like, what does the text say? What do the words mean? What does God say? That's what we need to care about, what it means. We live in this culture where everybody's opinion is equally valid. Well, that, it means that to me, but it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. That is not the context. That is not the word. That is not the usage. That is not the framework. That is not the historical context. That is not what Jesus is saying. So it doesn't mean that. And we need to have people who rightly divide the word of truth. So when statements like that are made, we can say, uh, you're wrong. You're wrong. And I've been in those. And you know what? Nobody likes to say that because we don't like to offend anybody. But you know what? I want to know I'm wrong. When I sat in a Bible study and someone was teaching and everybody's point of view was equally valid, I went, man, I'm in the wrong place because I want to learn God's truth. I want to know what it says. I don't want to walk out of here thinking what I believe is right because I don't even know what I believe. And I believe this today and yesterday I believe something else. I've changed my mind 50 times on this subject. So how can I be right when I know that I'm not right? And you're telling me I'm right. I'm even more confused now. What does it say? What does the text say? See, this is what Jesus was trying to get across. This is what God's word says. The Lord God says to my Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. How can he be his son and his God at the same time? What was the big stumbling block with Jesus? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? They saw him on human terms. They saw him on a human plane. But he's God. He's divine. He's a deliverer. See, that's why with no answer being offered, and we'll wrap all this up, and now you understand why he rebuked those who were standing there listening. And the reason he rebuked them was very simple. Because he was concerned about the people. And he said, while all the people were listening, he said this to the disciples. And I want you to picture this scene. He's saying, you know what? Watch out for these guys. They're supposed to be teaching you spiritual truth. Don't listen to them. Because they'll lead you astray. Today we say, oh, you know, don't come out and say things like that about people. Who are we to judge? We have a responsibility 
to uphold against the word of God, the standard of God's truth, we have to be able to identify truth from error. We need to call out, we need to name names. We need to say, don't go to this seminary because they teach lies. Don't go to this church because that pastor's way off base. Don't get involved in this movement because, you know what, that is not truth from the word of God. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny the inerrancy of God's word. They deny the holiness of God in scripture. They, they, they call sin right. They call wrong right. They call left right and right left. And they, you know, you don't go there. I had a gal email me a week ago and said, you know, her pastor now adopted other writings as on equal plane to the authority of Scripture. And she said, and I went to him and said, how can you do this? And he said, you know what, we can just agree to disagree. That doesn't mean that you can't come and fellowship at our church. And when she said that, I told her, you know what, you run as fast as you can and you go to a church that upholds biblical truth and maintains the inerrancy and the reliability and the trustworthy of the Word of God. Because when you start to introduce other writings on equal plane with Scripture, then that's where all heresy slips in. Because what writing will you introduce and what writing will you not? The Word of God stands alone. The Word of God is on a plane all by itself. The Bible is God's truth, and we need to know and recognize and understand why we believe the books that we have here today are the inerrant Word of God, inspired Word of God, as opposed to all the other writings in human history. We have to have a good handle on that. So what Jesus was doing is, notice this, he said, don't, you know, beware of the scribes. Look out for these guys. They like to walk around in long robes. Their desire is that they love respectful greetings in the marketplace and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Their desire is to soak it all up. Their desire isn't to be humble servants of God. Their desire is to lord it over those who have been allotted to their charge and compare that to 1 Peter chapter 5 where he says that you be humble and servants of God. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge. But you know what? But to walk in humility with God. They had special clothes that they wore. They had special robes that they wore. They had places of honor that they would sit. They couldn't have a party in that community without inviting one of these power players or these influencers of the culture. And they would sit at the chief table or the front seats and they like to be seen they love the applause of men and they could care less about whether they upheld the truth of God he said you watch out for people like that he went on and said look at the you know, and here's how else you'll know them you'll know them by their fruits he says beware of them they devour widows houses they devour widows houses they take advantage of people in their time of great time of need and basically what they would say is that, you know what, oh, and, and, and as he goes on, and their deception is, is that they would pray long prayers. Listen, I'm closer to God than you. And so if you want God to hear your prayer, then pay me some money and I'll go and I'll pray to God for you. And then they prayed these lengthy prayers, all these eloquent prayers. They just flowed from their lips. They knew all the right words to say. And people were enamored by the fact that they must be so close to God. And he said, you are whitewashed sepulchers. You are dirty, rotten within. You are dead spiritually on the inside. And the outside, you look like you got everything under control in your relationship with God. He said, you know what? They devour widows. They chew up and spit out people. And they deceive people in the process. 
And that's why our hope is in the Lord. Because you and I don't always know what's going on in the heart of another person. And you're putting your hope in them, their trust in them. Now, don't misunderstand. You know, I I pray that what you see is what you get. That there is no hypocrisy in me whatsoever. As Paul said, he said, you know what? Follow my example, follow my lead, because if you follow me, you'll do well because I follow the Lord. So we want to to have godly lives. We want to have a godly example. We want people to walk in our footsteps as long as we fix our eyes on the prize, which is Jesus Christ, Him crucified and resurrected. But at the same time, you need to understand, and I need to understand, that our hope is in the Lord. Our trust is in Him. Jesus said, beware of these people. But you don't have to be aware of God. Not in a negative sense. You need to be looking at him. You need to be focused on him. You need to be captivated by him. In all of this, how can we avoid the pitfalls that the religious leaders of Jesus' day fell into? How can we avoid being content with human saviors? And the answer is simple. We've got to immerse ourselves in the truth of God's word and obey it. We cannot look at God's word through subjective lenses. We cannot search Scripture to validate our behavior. We cannot search Scripture to tell us what we already think we know and what we want to hear. We have got to go to Scripture. We have got to come to times like this with an open heart and an open mind and say, Lord, you teach me your truth. And then when you reveal it to me, God, give me the strength to walk in obedience with you. What has he taught you today? What have you heard his spirit telling you to do? And bringing it all back together, how can David's son be David's Lord? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you? Anything less than you are my Lord and my God is a frightening, frightening, frightening proposition. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the truth that we were able to look at. God, it's my prayer that we will no longer look into your word through our own subjective lenses, but that we will be open teachable, transparent, and that we will honestly deal with the evidence that you lay out. God, I pray for those who are here right now who, when they're asked the most important question that they could ever be asked, don't have an answer. Who is Jesus to you? God, it's my prayer that right here and right now, the Bible says, whosoever calls upon the Lord will not be disappointed and that today is the day of salvation. This moment in time, if God is tugging at your heart, that you would pray a simple prayer, God, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I believe that Jesus Christ came into this world, the God of the universe, the Son of God, to die on a cross, that he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and all his enemies one day will be a footstool under his feet. 
I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose again from the dead. And the best of my understanding, I now receive him and ask him to come into my life as my Lord and as my God. Father, I thank you that you hear our prayers. I thank you that we're born again by your will, an act of God, not by our own human efforts. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's your gift offered to all who will receive it so that none of us could ever boast. Lord, we thank you for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That he humbled himself and took on the appearance and made in the likeness of man. That he was obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. That God, you raised him up from the dead three days later and he is alive today. And that he has been given a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. Father, I thank you that he is my Lord and he is my God. I thank you that my hope is in, in, is in him and in him alone. Father, draw us close to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.